running now, huh? Okay, fine. We are now on the air. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Bone Ditch by Ian Bird. My name is Ian Bird and this is Bone Ditch, which is my collection of kitsch eldritch scritchings, short stories set in a world where catastrophe is an infectious virus and patient zero, typhoid Mary Poppins herself, is a long dead witch who's still keeping all of her eyes on you. You can always find out more about the Bone Ditch project at my website, www.boneditch.wordpress.com and on Twitter I'm Mr. Carapace. Tonight's story is the 19th, and also the first part of the third and final act of the story. Act 1 was the story of Elliot Rent and her friends, and how they all fell into disaster together and then again separately. And Act 2 was a collection of weird tales uncovered by Elliot about the Bone Ditch. Vengeful ghosts, recruitment agencies in hell, weird circuses, warehouses, love songs and murder she wrote. But Act 3 is the story of what happens next, at the two ends of the world. We're returning to Governor Spinnaker, the punchline to the serial killer story Henry Action, to the California ladies from a bun in the coven, and the fearsome sisters under the skin, Bonnie, Margaret and Jessica, they're returning from chapter 6. But this story is mainly about the life and times of Michael Breeden, Elliot's first lover, who we last saw escaping from a pack of cannibal zombie celebrities at the start of the year 2000 in I'd Have to Talk About Virility. This story is called Saints Are Sinners Who Kept On Going, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. He stood at the parapet of the pulpit. Humans, he said, have always striven for order, even though everything else in the universe tends towards chaos. But maybe chaos is simply a different form of order, atomized, more granular, a dissolute but nevertheless theoretically predictable restructuring around the gravity of entropy. Chaos isn't to be feared, it's just red sky thinking thinking outside the missile silos. We're all kissing cousins of chaos. No, the enemy isn't chaos. The enemy is catastrophe. Because a catastrophe just doesn't give a fuck. The professor smiled at them all, his white teeth shining like polished bone from his grey complexion. This, he said, is a story about catastrophe. Later, at the blessed end of that seemingly interminable lecture, Governor Edward Spinnaker noticed the crowd of people waiting for them and assumed that they were political junkies, the kind of people who swap anecdotes about encounters with elected officials with the same giddy mania normal people are fused when they bump into a sports star or movie icon. It was there in their haircuts, their neat but inexpensive suits, bless them. The university lecture circuit was just full of them. So Governor Spinnaker had smiled warmly and had approached this congregation of students and enthusiasts, pausing only when he noticed that most of them were carrying hatchets and knives. It was at that point that he noticed his bodyguard Harold standing among them, dead and bled, the perfect place to hide a corpse among his murderers. Now, said one of the enthusiasts, they dropped the corpse and charged at him. Governor Spinnaker turned and fled. Senator Wilhelm Crown looked over at his colleague, surprised to see such a dignified peer running towards him like a child. Sir, began Carl, Crown's bodyguard standing beside him, I'm not sure that... But the young woman with whom Senator Crown had just been chatting looked up at Carl, a full 18 inches taller than her, and took the opportunity to stab his groin with a carving knife. Blood fountained from Carl's crotch, dousing Senator Crown's face, and he staggered back, distracted and unsure exactly what had happened. Carl staggered to the ground and inevitably died. The young woman turned to the blood-blinded senator, but was pushed aside by Governor Spinnaker. She fell to the ground and inevitably went on to write a blog about it all. Crown! Spinnaker shrieked. Now, come with me! 
The two politicians fled, hand in hand like lovers, bare metres from the baying, blood-stained mob in pursuit. The lecture had been given by Professor Michael Breeden. It had been an introduction to his opus, The Eminence Grease, the kind of title that gives nothing away about its content except the swaggering confidence that it is leaden with meaning. Professor Breeden, early forties, badminton and amphetamine thin, cultivating a sweeping mane of prematurely grey hair to complement his authentic 1920s celluloid and gold spectacle frames, had a meaning for everything. He had been speaking about catastrophe. It is said that while mathematics can predict the curve of smooth, continuous, quantitative change, the material transformation of the bubble that bursts, of the liquid that becomes ice, is more problematic, catastrophic. The perspective is changed forever. You cannot untoss a salad. You cannot unscramble an egg. And speaking of comedy, this catastrophic perspective shift is akin to what happens to our minds when we perceive a pun, when one meaning becomes another. When we take an insult, when one's associate becomes an enemy, this becomes that, one becomes another. That's magic, a catastrophe, a single event, unanticipated, which spawns a family of consequences that change everything. Spinnaker and Crown fell into their limousine. Their chauffeur was nowhere to be seen, so Spinnaker took the wheel. What's happening? babbled Crown. It's the end of the world, said Spinnaker. I knew it. I knew it. He drove them into the night. Behind them they sensed invisible flames consuming the landscape and the buildings, devastation spread by hate-seeking missiles and amour-piercing bullets. He tuned the radio to a news station. The broadcasters seemed to be talking about the weather, but Spinnaker could tell that they were actually speaking in code. He couldn't interpret the signal entirely, but he understood the message. It was an uprising. It was a turning. This into that. One meaning into another. It had been embedded in what Professor Breeden had been talking about. This wasn't about a single mob, he realised. This was about everyone. Crown. That lecture. Was it being broadcast? No, of course not. A wave of relief, but then a second thought. Not at all. Not even over the internet. Well, of course it was being webcast. Didn't you see those logos everywhere? said Crown. I didn't see any cameras. Of course you didn't. They were everywhere. They were using their phones. They were using their phones. Who said that? said Spinnaker. Who said that? repeated the third voice. The car, said Spinnaker. This car's online. In half a mile, go south on the motorway. In 666 miles, you will have reached your devastation. Spinnaker pulled over and switched off every machine he could find. What are you doing, man, said Crown. We've got to get out of here. We've got to go on foot. Leave your phone. They're looking at us. Spinnaker ran out of the car, throwing the devices in his pockets over his shoulder. They clattered against Crown as he followed him into the darkness. The two of them stumbled down a verge, tumbling over one another through scrub bushes. The desert moon looked down on them, brilliant blue light bursting from the trepanation wound in God's immaculate forehead. You stupid twat, screamed Crown as they both fell. Take gendered insults, continued Professor Breeden earlier that evening, to which you would include synonyms for genitals deployed as offensive epithets. They clearly root their potency in misogyny, a cowardly misogyny since it is camouflaged with the pretense of mere vulgarity, but a dick is not a twat. The spell is different in every sense. We call such profanity swear words, and again there is a power in the spell. For one thing, the literal origin of profane is that which is said outside the temple. In this way, it bears similarity to, to obscene, literally that which cannot be shown on stage. That there thus exists a corollary between the temple, held to hold truth, and the stage, held to be false, is illuminating. What else might be shared by these two opposite opposites? But there is more. Today, a swear word is a disrespectful vulgarity, 
but originally, of course, one swore an oath. That is, one made a vow of fidelity and honesty that was integral to one's honour and purpose, and one made that sacrosanct oath before God. Even naming God in the context of a promise of future actions was considered a sacred act. Early profanities reveal this religious origins. Blimey is a contraction of God blind me, and zounds a contraction of God's wounds. It is instructive how these more prosaic profanities are the ones with more existential weight. Consider the gravity, the incredible consequences behind something the six-year-old denied access to shit and fuck might say. Damn you. Blast. And so the profane overtakes the sacred. The sacrosanct cannot stand. It is overwhelmed by the inexorable tide of chaos. We drag down God. We drag down women. We debase what's important to us in order to fuel that engine of hate and change, that facility to devastate, degrade and dominate. We have to. It exists, so eventually it must go. As Oscar said, he who lives more lives than one, more lives than one must die. Periodically, we wrestle these words back, overtaken by humility and decency. We recognise the hate we are coding into mere syllables and we refute them. But we are discussing a relentless, essential and predictable colonising force. We will always need something that enables us to sow our destructive, disruptive hatred. And the best way to grow hate is upon something real. That's chaos, and it's natural. It is instructive when we see where our hate is infected, especially when the true source of the poison is apparently invisible to us. Look at the casual insults we use to describe people we think of as stupid. Cretin, moron, imbecile, idiot. Socially, these words are almost benign, but they have their origins in the utterly banal and inescapable cruelty of humanity. The Cretin of the French Alps, Christians washed clean of sin by baptism, but poisoned by the overabundance of iodine in their natural water supply and suffering debilitating hypothyroidism as a consequence. And we vilify these people, who just thought differently. Crown and Spinnaker rolled to a halt at the bottom of the hill. Spinnaker pounced to his feet and ran off further into the darkness. Wait for me, shrieked Crown, wait for me! They ran and they ran through the California desert night, tripping over vines, stumbling over boulders, until they both bounced off an all but invisible wire fence. They fell back onto the ground and stared up at the moon. What are we doing? said Crown. There was something in that lecture, Spinnaker said, something infectious. That's why those students attacked us. And it was being broadcast, so everyone would be going mad right now as they listened to the lecture. That's mad. You're mad. That's, that's not how the internet works. Crown, do you have a single clue how the internet works? Crown fell silent. Exactly, Spinnaker continued. If I know anything, it's that shit goes crazy all the time, in the last way you can imagine. But no one ever got rich off that, so everyone just ignores it when the world flips over. We would just pretend it wasn't chaos, it never happened. Those people were never there to begin with, we'd say. I could tell you some fucking stories. But now we are those people. What are we going to do? Spinnaker's eyes went red. I need to speak with my mother. Teddy, said Crown. Your mother's dead. Just then a small woman in white appeared before them both, standing silently in the night. She was in her early thirties, blonde and pale, and barefoot. Yum yum, she said. The witches were hungry. Michael first thought about the end of the world when he was about seven, some way back in the 1980s. The idea came to him suddenly one Saturday morning in his mother's kitchen as he opened the box of tea bags. Inside the box was a small collecting card, Mysteries of the Unexplained, it read, and it introduced the small boy to Nostradamus, the 16th century apothecary who predicted the rise of Hitler, the assassination of Kennedy, and the end of the world in the year 2000. 
Michael no longer had any conscious memory of that subsequent night, but it was sleepless and studded with terrors. The thought lodged in him, like the spore of a mushroom finding root, and he was infected with inspiration. Dr Stuart Payne would not smoke marijuana with him just over a decade later at university. He argued that having an affair with a student was one thing, but sharing narcotics was quite another. The walls have ears, he had said, and the vines have eyes. That night, when Michael was catastrophically stoned, he decided to pick on his boyfriend. So, did you turn gay all of a sudden, or did you lie to your wife when you married her? They are in bed together, the only light coming from the street lamp behind the curtain. Michael was sure that they were the only two in people in the room, but he really had no way of being sure. He had just snuck Stuart's ex-wife in there with them, for instance. It's a bit more complicated than that, Stuart replied. Is it? said Michael. Did you know what you were doing, or did you just have no idea what the hell you actually were? Stuart got out of bed and took down a bottle from the top shelf of the cabinet by the window. He blew into a glass and poured himself a small measure of green liquor. My drug's a lot better for me than your drug, observed Michael. This is absinthe, said Dr Payne. Oscar said, after the first glass of absinthe, you see things as you wish they were. After the second, you see them as they are not. Finally, you see things as they really are, and that is the most horrible thing in the world. How many glasses were you on when you agreed to marry her? Dr Payne was nothing if not a lecturer. One of the toxic ingredients of absinthe is the plant wormwood. Wormwood crops up in the Bible. It's the name of a comet that crashes to earth in the book of Revelations and poisons a third of the world's water supply. Scientists in Chernobyl say that the radioactive core at the centre of the destroyed power plant is corrosive and since the 1986 meltdown has been creeping down through the earth. It'll be radioactive for centuries. There's literally nothing we can do about it. It's just leaching its way down further and further. Michael sucked on the joint, his eyes tearing up just as Governor Spinakers would when thinking about his dead mother in the Californian desert in 20 years' time. Ten years before, he was lying in bed and remembering opening a box of tea bags that very Saturday morning. So, said Michael, almost aware of the chaotic elements fluttering to roost around him, the radioactive shit that was the core of the reactor will reach the water table eventually. It's just gravity and entropy working together unexpectedly, and it'll poison the water. Chernobyl happens to be the Russian word for wormwood. Stuart finished his drink there in the dark. Michael remembered the kind of dread you cannot see or interpret, like the fear that snags in you and stays in you and keeps a seven-year-old awake all night, or the lurching and incomprehensible meanings behind the swear words his mother used to describe queers. Obscene. Finally, said Stuart, remembering his wedding day, you see things as they really are, and that is the most horrible thing in the world. The witches had dragged the politicians underground and slit Crown's throat before Spinnaker had managed to make enough sense for them to stop cooking his friend and start paying attention to what he was saying. Spinnaker was babbling, but their dead mother's third eye was on him somehow, so Seulis decided to give him the benefit of the doubt, at least until they had finished eating Crown. Vesica didn't believe a word of it, but then she was hungry and hadn't eaten a politician since Watergate. Shreeberinen was the one who suggested using the final front ear in the pit to check whether there was a corrosive chaos plague being transmitted across the globe, and when it was pointed out to her that chasing and interpreting an internet signal might be beyond their capabilities, added that they could always use the machine to speak with Bonnie, who might be able to help. The ladies hadn't seen Bonnie for a number of years, and the witches missed her. That was a good enough reason. 
Michael remembered the box of tea bags and the infectious dread that roiled from Stuart as he and Belinda rode back to the mainland on the 1st of January 2000. The mask of the red top had just ended with the uprising of the zombie celebrities and the young man was left thinking about the end of the world and seeing things as they truly were. Are you okay? Belinda asked. I feel like I should be asking you that question, he replied, to save himself the shame of having to admit that there was now a terrible new idea in his head among the belief systems he had taken for granted. Don't be a chauvinist, said Belinda. I wasn't, he replied to the younger woman. I was being ageist. They took their leave of one another shortly after and went back to their individual lives. Michael decided to get into risk management. He didn't know why, it just seemed sensible, and it turned out that he had a facility for identifying hazard and planning contingencies. He had been attacked by undead celebrities and the world had just continued and he was now incredibly attenuated to disaster. He composed meaningful policies for the mitigation of emergencies and devised complicated databases that quantified and plotted catastrophes. He made a small fortune in the private sector, especially in industries where governmental regulation had been gutted. Often his recommendations were ignored, especially when he espoused consideration of low-probability, high-impact outlier occurrences, but his hurt pride was frequently salved when the terrible, terrible events he had prophesied happened over and over and over again. Before the disaster happens, Michael observed, it is impossible, but after it has happened it is inevitable. Many people, he observed, suffered and died because of the embarrassment that would have come with their leaders admitting that they were afraid of the dark. He invested his income wisely for the longer term and then went back to university. While there, he operated a risk management consultancy that paid him handsomely while searching his classrooms for another Dove Kittery, another Elliot Rent, another Stuart Payne. The friends and lovers he accumulated while achieving his history degree and then his history masters and then his history PhD resembled these old touchstones but never warmed him the way that they had. His facility for contingency planning warmed him when new relationships threatened his peace of mind and he followed these augmented instincts diligently. So his heart was never broken and he was never let down. Michael never again fell in love. Catastrophe never touched him that way again. But his predilection for history surprised him, as did the management textbooks he started writing. As he passed through his thirties, his mind settled upon a perspective that wasn't sullied by chance or caprice. He identified and then efficiently achieved his potential. He became quite respectable. Every so often he would have a dream that would leave him staggering through the next day a slave to doubt, but no one ever noticed. Michael Breeden, Dr. Michael Breeden, was sexy and smart, enigmatic and exact. No one ever caught him in a lie, although he lied often. Nobody ever accused him of being a bully, although he used his talents for predicting and avoiding hazard to steal opportunities that should have gone to more deserving colleagues and friends. He always came first, just in case. His work in history and his capacity for future planning led him to hear stories that were hidden in other stories, occult lessons that bestowed lessons he gobbled up and upon which he became muscular and sleek. He never told anyone how he spent New Year's Eve 1999, but had anyone paid attention to his specialties and fascinations, they would have been able to plot the constellation. There was a town in France, he learned, called Harriencourt. In the late 1840s, most of its occupants fell victim to an outbreak of St Anthony's fire. This was a rare disease, also called ergotism, that was caused by exposure to the Clavicep's purpurea fungus. A tiny mushroom would spread thread-like sexual spores into the air at the same time as local rye and cereals germinated, and the spores would hijack the plants. Purple and black buds on the grasses should alert farmers to the infection, but if care was not taken, then the crops could enter the human food chain. Michael read the symptoms with horror, recognition and delight. 
Ergot was similar in structure to LSD. The infected would suffer manic convulsions, vertigo, crawling skin, hallucinations, delirium and psychosis. Gangrene could set in, extremities could rot away. Michael, who had escaped an undead mob of psychotic celebrities and never again been the same, squinted at the descriptions of the victims and imagined a mad, hallucinating, rotted enemy in plague numbers. Michael found another academic who theorised that the Salem witch trials came about when sufferers of ergotism were confused with victims of bewitchment. There is nothing new under the sun, or the daughter. It transpired that the harrying core epidemic had been spread deliberately. The local baker, a man named Bonson, had purposefully cultivated the infected grain and sold bread he had made from it. More than 500 people had suffered, many of them attacking, wounding and even killing their neighbours in manic confusion. Bonson, when arrested, assured his authorities that he was a good Christian and that he expected to be rewarded for revealing the sinner that hid in Eden than the godliest of innocents. C'est propre, he had said before he'd been guillotined. Donne-nous aujourd'hui notre pain quotidien. Our daily bread, considered Michael. Notre pain quotidien. And weren't we all? thought Professor Michael Breeden as he began to draft Eminence Grise, his treatise on history and risk and catastrophe and monstrous suffering and the predictable inevitability of it all, painfully bred. The town of Cabot Coven is famous in a way that is never discussed by anyone. It's a small town of about 3,500 people. It's about 250 miles north of Boston on the Penobscot Bay. In the summer, the residents stare out across the water and dream of voyages, and in the autumn they turn back over their shoulders to watch the leaves cascade through an impossible spectrum and dream of bonfires. In the winter, however, they huddle together and think about how their town is the highest murder rate in the United States. No spree killers, no serial murderers, no street crime or organised crime of any sort, just a whimsical killing season that one census taker estimated claims about 20 people a year more than ten times the national average. Would-be masterminds, vendetta-crazed lunatics, desperate victims of blackmail and extortion, every killer seems to have a complicated motive and a Rube Goldberg plot. No one talks about it, no one wants to wallow in the grief and fear that you would think would follow naturally, and instead the townsfolk take quiet solace that their town is also home to a terrifying, avenging witch who tears away the mystery and insists that justice be done. No one has ever died unavenged in Cabot's coven. The most insidious and ingenious and dastardly murderer is always dragged to face justice through the machinations and instincts and ferocious intellect of the virago who lives at 666 Candlewood. She came to Cabot Coven in the 1960s, an English-born journalist working in New York, following her husband Frank back to his hometown after they married. Frank had been a helicopter pilot in Korea and had returned home to retrain as a doctor, inspired when his life had been saved by a wise-cracking battlefield medic who happened to have grown up two towns further along the New England coast. The witch, charmed by the warrior who had decided to devote his life to healing, became an English teacher in the small town, and for 20 years they were both very happy. Frank had died in 1983, and the witch had been bereft. But not for long. The witch who everyone knows as Jessica, lives in a beautiful and intricate cottage on a hill, overlooking the bay. She lives with two friends and everyone in the town is glad to think of themselves as Jessica's nephew or niece. Jessica is nearly 100 years old now, and although slower these days, she remains relentless. She bicycles through the town every day, her piercing blue eyes seeing everything, understanding everyone. 
Every resident of Cabot's Coven is frightened of her, but also incredibly proud and galvanised, as you would feel were you to stand in the middle of a lightning storm at midnight. The murders don't really bother the town, not existentially. You tolerate the smell of blood if you want to watch sharks. Jessica was excited that morning because Margaret was returning home. Just then, Bonnie was driving to the airport to bring their housemate back from her tour of Moldavia as a guest of King Galen. Jessica preferred to have her sisters around her. But while she waited for Bonnie and Margaret to return, Jessica returned to the third act of her current project and to reading the clawed signature left by her latest arch-enemy on her latest cadaver. Another of her nephews had become involved in the subterranean machinations of some megalomaniac and had been left to the witch to enchant a solution from the entrails of chaos that had been left in the gory wake. Of course it was you, smiled Jessica to Danielle Farah. You were so keen for us all to notice how terrified of heights you were at the party, but you forgot that Martin had already shown us those photographs of you on the spacewalk. Danielle gibbered, soon to be on her way to the gibbet, and confessed. All these psychopaths, they always believed that the intricacies of their plans rationalised their bloodlust, that nothing that had been so carefully considered could truly be evil. They all believed that their delicate planning obscured the offence, as if they weren't living in a chaotic butcher shop where fastidious reeked like fortnight-old meat. This time it was the lover of a real estate developer on the political rise, a blackmail plot that had staggered into homicide, with Jessica's nephew inevitably caught in the crossfire. Her nephew and Sheriff Reelman, and even Special Agent Barrelmacher of the FBI, they all saw the killer as an aberration, something that had gone wrong at an early age and decided to trade membership of the human race for a few visceral thrills in the pursuit of profit. They couldn't see it the way that Jessica did. Crime was not just the judgement that they passed. To these lawmen, it was the disease itself. Only Jessica saw that the crime was just the symptom. These killers used words like motive and opportunity, but what they actually meant was something that lived beyond them, a pulsating embryonic thing that grew and slathered with each cavalier and vulgar infraction. These killers weren't actually killing. They were heating the water and gathering the towels. They were midwives to something else, something for whom murders were an expanding dilation. Meanwhile, the world was being reorganised in spite of her. Her own sense of order was becoming quaint. Jessica smiled and joked in her amiable, quirky and sexless manner as Special Agent Barrelmacher led Danielle Farrer away in chains. Everyone smiled as the criminal was punished and the world returned to normal. But then, suddenly, again, only Jessica noticed it. Only Jessica noticed that it was suddenly as if the world froze. No longer turning, the dead globe sent Jessica lurching as if she had just stepped off a carousel, as if her brain had been swallowed whole by vertigo and she was suddenly convinced that she was having a stroke. It was like being trapped in a painting suddenly, a painting that was rotting before the eyes of some unchanging and unseen immortal spectator. She felt trapped like a little yellow bird in a cage. And there was music in the back of her skull, a frantic piano reel, and suddenly it seemed that the architects of this cool and predictable universe were taking their bows as their private breed of order was restored. Everyone smiled their frozen smile as the criminal was punished and the world returned to normal. But but only Jessica smelled the spoiled meat under the hot lights. And why were there lights all of a sudden, like the spot lamps you get in an operating theatre or in a play theatre? Stage lights, were they? All of a sudden, Jessica felt completely unreal, that her actions and motivations and had been given to her on a script, that the scriptwriter was a brain-devouring fiend and the director a homicidal lunatic who would see them all decapitated for the perfect shot. 
Everything was suddenly very wrong, Jessica felt. There was a body in the library and now all the books stank. Not of death. Death was natural. Now all the books reeked of corruption. Dead trees killed by a contagion and turned into a recitation of infectious lies. That stench would be breathed in by everyone who opened those books in the future. She imagined, still frozen in time, her species gorging itself on that rotten meat, a foul and murderous meal even she had planned to, played a hand in preparing. Wait, what's your rush? What's your hurry? You gave me such a fright. I thought you was a ghost. Just as frozen as the rest of them, Danielle the killer suddenly seemed somehow to smirk straight at Jessica. And Jessica felt the world itself smile to take its orders from a liar power, from a germ of corruption and degeneracy growing in the womb, written into the script. These fiends were only pretending to be murderers. They were really something else. That smirk was confession as striptease. Beneath the flashy sackcloth of a mere confessed killer is a tusked pig on two legs, porcine dick swinging between bristling legs, mad with appetites we can't understand or recognise, something worse than the devil, making us believe that evil is as low as we can go. But there is something worse than evil. This is a story. This isn't real. This is the illusion of justice. These are the unfathomable machinations of something that is preparing for a climax. Danielle wasn't just a killer. She was a dramatic disease. Every character dies at the end of the scene. Jessica wanted her sisters around her. As the world continued to swim with vertigo, she missed dear dead James. But then the world started to turn again. As the lawman left the room, Jessica felt them shiver as they passed her. Good, she thought. Let them be afraid. She would need their fear and loathing to get through this, to save them all. Or maybe she was just getting old. Their plans, said Sheriff Reelman as they all left the building, out of earshot of the audience or the director or the scriptwriter. Their plans are getting crazier, more convoluted, aren't they? They aren't crimes of passion anymore, are they? If these are master plans, I would hate to meet the master. The lawmen always looked to Jessica for answers. Every time she revealed the truth, she became a little less believable, a little more frightening. But it comforted them all the same. Their disreputable aunt, their gorgon mother, Antigone, Medea, Carly. She didn't answer the sheriff. Jessica said her goodbyes and cycled home. Michael Breeden knew that St Anthony's fire wasn't the only disease named for a saint. There was also, for example, St. Vitus's Dance, also known as Sydenham's Career, which was held to be responsible for the so-called Dancing Plague of 1518 in Strasbourg in Alsace. 400 people, mainly women, had suddenly and unaccountably taken to dancing uncontrollably for days and days without rest. Some suffered for over a month, some collapsed and died. At the worst point in the outbreak, 15 people were dying every day. Doctors prescribed musicians as therapy, hoping that accompaniment would help the victims dance through to the end. Blamed on hot blood, this was believed to be a variation on ergotism, a combination of nerve damage and massive excitation caused by a yeast infestation. The more Michael scoured his library, the more the history of his world turned dark and strange and inevitably chaotic. Here was the Tanganyika laughter epidemic of 1962. About a hundred teenage girls at the same mission-run boarding school had suddenly broken into hysterical laughter, a whole two-thirds of the school's population. They were sent back to their homes. They didn't stop laughing. But then there was the patron saint of common sense, Therese of Lisieux, who died in 1897. Following a train of saints, Michael read her opinion on the chaotic. We should not say improbable things, she said, or things we do not know. We must see their real and not their imagined lives. I love only simplicity. I have a horror of pretense. I thought I had lied. 
I was unable to look upon myself without a feeling of profound horror. Saint Therese's mother had been a lace maker, her father a watchmaker. Detailed intricacy, attention to detail. Among her devotees were Jack Kerouac and Edith Piaf. A germ in the placenta, thought Michael. As she rode, Jessica remembered meeting the other three sisters, Bonnie, Margaret and her predecessors, in that Nepalese hotel. 1958 it was, just before she had met Frank in New York. She had been flying with James Stewart to get the Pang Bosch Yeti bones out of Nepal before the Chinese could confiscate them. James had hired a tiny twin-prop aeroplane and flown them both himself. They would meet up with his wife, Gloria, later in Marrakesh. The two of them had stopped at Boris's place, the Hotel Royale, just to be sure that they weren't being followed out of Nepal. You'd be surprised how much of this story is true. In the bar, Jimmy had studied his script for, was it Bell Booking Candle? While Jessica had watched the Cosmopolitites drink their gins and compare their wars. Canchester's El Alamein darling was so much more civilised than Sydenham's career. The powerful and the beautiful had been so impressive back then. A young woman, fierce, was singing at the bar piano. She was focused entirely on her music, almost sulking to be playing in public, but dignified and cool, powerful. She sang, I loves you, Porgy, and then started a song Jessica had never heard before. It was slow and sad. She was singing about black, the colour of her true love's hair, but Jessica realised that she was really singing about something far more essential. Jessica couldn't take her eyes off this woman, playing in public but plainly only playing to herself, singing about her lover but plainly singing only about her own sadness. There and then Jessica wrote a story for the woman in her head. She was travelling under an alias. She would keep moving through the world for the rest of her life under an assumed name. Her magic would become more and more personal, more and more devastating. People would be terrified of this woman's power. This woman would sing the world as it was and the world would never forgive her for that even as they flocked to listen to her play. James suddenly beckoned Jessica back to him. He was now standing with a grizzled, leathery man in his early fifties and a small girl of about seven. The stranger was smoking a huge cigar and laughing self-consciously. When he laughed, his eyes became scars in leather and his mouth stretched into a huge maw studded with huge teeth, like the mouth of a ravenous white whale. He clapped Jimmy on the shoulder. Thought you'd escape to the ends of the world, eh, Colonel? said the stranger, and laughed again. Don't you know you'll always find us there? Well, Jack, I guess I suppose you were more likely to be on a boat somewhere instead of halfway up a mountain. Bogey's dead, James, and Peck ain't talking to me any more, so for my next trick I'll just have to sail a boat up and down a mountain, just to prove a point to you. What are you doing here, Jack? I'm taking a trip with my daughter here, my little Angel. Say hello, Angel. The seven-year-old girl stared at Stuart and Jessica politely, but severely. Her hair was raven black and her eyes were dark and shadowy. She held herself poised like a ballerina, reminding Jessica of a character from an old Adams Family cartoon. I hear that this old biddy has put together a weird conference, women only, very hush-hush, and it seems that Marilyn herself is going to be here. I've been hunting that woman for months, it feels like. That blonde woman tasks me. I need her for a piece. It's a witch's conference, said the serious little girl. Angel's been saying that all week, laughed Jack. I told her, I guess even witches get respectable if they live long enough. But of course we try and burn them or drown them long before that. That's why I asked Dad to bring me here, said the little girl. I owed little Angel a favour and figured it couldn't hurt my chances with Marilyn. Is that why you're here, Jimmy? Are you chasing the great white tail as well? 
James Stewart shook his head. No, no, I'd like to work with Marilyn, but I'm about to start work with Kim Novak in a couple of weeks. Ah, that thing with Hitch. Sure, and then this other thing. A stage adaptation with some pup called Quine. I heard about that one, said the little girl. Elsa Lanchester's going to be in it, right? Is that right, said Jessica. I love her. Really, sweetheart, said Jack, turning to Jessica. Why? Just then, Jessica noticed that the young woman had stopped singing. She turned back to the piano and watched her greet a short old woman dressed in exotic, colourful fabric. The older white woman glittered in the light of the bar, contrasting entirely with the severe younger black woman in the plain dark dress, and beamed at her young companion, her eyes hungry and fascinated. Jessica thought she saw the shadow of a scar on the older woman's face, then gasped. "'That's Freya Stark,' Jessica whispered. "'That's what I hear,' said Jack. "'She's the old biddy who put together this conference.' "'Freya Stark? That's Freya Stark? But that's impossible.' Jessica stepped forwards involuntarily. "'I've been a fan of her all my life.' It felt like a bizarre hallucination, altitude sickness or vertigo, the unpredictable appearance of an impossible woman in the last place you would expect. Jessica heard even James hold his breath, dragged along in the mad vortex. Apparently, laughed Jack, she just realised that she married a queer and now she lives in hotels and pretends it was all part of the plan. Freya put her hands to her mouth to stifle a sudden laugh. At the far end of the hotel bar, huge ornate double doors opened and the three witches walked in, laughing, glittering, dazzling. Pat, Alice and Shirley. And Jessica, 33 years old, looked at the three witches and recognised the path of the rest of her life. No one else noticed, except perhaps the severe little girl. Be the storyteller, not the story. Demand maximum results, Angel grinned. Her severe face had fallen like a mask. Beneath it beamed the sun. Professor Michael Breeden knew all about James Stewart and the Pangbosh Yeti and the infamous 1958 Conference of Witches. Ever since the Mask of the Red Tops at the very end of 1999, he had been obsessed with the occult gatherings of those whose power ran catastrophic. Once he understood that there was a chaos at work here among us, above and around us, something that spelled according to a different grammar that was anomalous and strange, he assumed and then began to intuit a character behind the apparent madness and ultimately a new logic of sorts. A bottomless pit, nevertheless overfilling with cadavers, a carnal house of those destroyed by catastrophe, those transformed by madness, an endless ditch of bones. There had been chaoticians like him before, and he studied their works as well, but he was prodigious, a breed apart. At last the boy who had seduced his university lecturer was as special as Dr Stuart Payne had always argued. There was an infection at work, Professor Breeden understood. Some germ in the placenta that corrupted the womb herself curled the blood flow with an alien madness. A rhyme instead of a repetition. The closer he looked, the greater the risk, of course, that the image he was studying in that dark glass became a shadow on his own reflection, his own intents. But it was worth the risk, he decided. There was a personality to the madness, a distinct catastrophe within the chaos. The pattern was random, an anti-pattern, but that rhyme could be like a signature. It was there in the inevitable downfall, the low-probability, high-impact outlier event, the ironic fate, the just deserts, the twist in the tale, Sod's Law. It always went wrong, nothing lasted, everything always fell apart because the centre could never hold. And so then it occurred to him that the germ embedded and growing in the placental walls might actually be order. And the womb itself was a cradle of formless chaos. After all, chaos came before cosmos, didn't it? 
No wonder order never took. Order was just a mutation. He was spun upside down like a fetus in an amniotic sac, breech birth. He remained closeted within the crammed study in the haunted house of his mind. Tracing the signature through history's mad twin, a graffiti tag on the walls of the asylum, a goddess signing her work. Professor Michael Breeden looked out of his window and looked at the clouds. They reminded him of the vectors of plagues across modern cities, a monumental squall of victims. A squall is a storm at sea. It is also an old word for a scream. A squalus is a shark. It was all the same thing, a monstrous clock, pitiless, but perhaps predictable. That night, three years ago, Professor Breeden sat down at his desk and started to write a book that would explain absolutely everything. The book would be a reflection of that monster clock face. He was frightened what would happen when he finished writing the book. Jessica's sisters were waiting for her, and she almost wept with relief. They were all getting older. Jessica always noticed that after they'd been apart for any period of time. Margaret had just turned 80 somehow, and Bonnie, even sweet Bonnie, who must have been just a teenager when they had first met in 1983, was now impossibly in her early 60s. They sat in the kitchen, three points on the circumference of their mahogany breakfast table. A triangle has many centres, but a circle has just one, and at the centre of the table stood a bottle of red wine. They opened, poured and killed the bottle as they each told the others the stories of their last few weeks apart. Jessica told them the tale of the mad extortionist and the strange moment of traumatic awareness that had come at the moment of the criminal's unmasking. Jessica read in Margaret's silence the diagnosis of some kind of arteriosclerotic episode and attempted to smile reassuringly. Just speak with Doc Pierce, Margaret said, answering the smile. He'll put your mind at rest. There weren't any doctors in Cabot Coven who would see Jessica. They were all too afraid. So Margaret's old army buddy, who coincidentally had also been Frank's old friend and still lived down the coast, was their general physician. My mind is at rest, said Jessica. Your mind is the one wondering when I last updated my will. Bonnie fetched another bottle from the rack and refilled their glasses. Jessica's been living in that body for 90 years, Bonnie said. She knows better than anyone how it works and whether anything's wrong with it. Margaret squeezed Bonnie's arm and smiled. Margaret had the best smile. She had never faked a smile in her life. How was Moldavia? Bonnie asked. Very strange. And that meant a lot coming from Margaret. She travelled the world following the war from one country to another and back again. Cannibal holocausts, ground zero, epicentres and hypercentres and plague pits and mass graves and carnal houses and the boardrooms where they all voted on all their plans and signed all their minutes. Margaret had tended to the sick and eviscerated the guilty at each one. She had been invited to inspect the front by King Galen himself, who had a weakness for the infamous American guests and a terrible moral cowardice that evidenced itself through his fetishization of powerful women who were appalled at him. The rumours of what was unravelling, or unveiling, itself in Moldavia had made his invitation to Margaret inevitable. Decades of civil war stoked over and over again each time each side forged an alliance with one antichrist after another had made the small principality something of a vanguard of the vicious. Gobbets of half-forgotten meat were often bobbing to the surface of the fetid well of their cultural history to remind the drinkers of long-forgotten escapades from the previous gouting bout of damnation. Antichrists. You hang around waiting for one for a millennia or two and then suddenly they're all over you like syphilis sores. But this was Margaret's story. 
Médecins Sans Frontières raised the alarm about three months ago, she said. Up in the hills, the town of Domage was the scene of the wedding day massacre in the early 80s. Some hideous biological weapons were used there and it was assumed that everyone was dead and the town blighted. But apparently not. Dozens of families still live there and they seem to be thriving. There's been an exodus from the town over the years, as you can imagine. But from interviewing those left behind, it seems that those that left decided to keep the fact that they had come from Domage a secret. Why? Bonnie asked. The Hiroshima effect, said Margaret. The weapons were used was so terrible, Bonnie knew the story, that survivors actually felt ashamed that they had suffered them, and people around them were so afraid of the weapons that they were suspicious of those that survived. That's awful. Anne makes mapping the consequences of the weapons far more difficult. So what did you discover? Jessica asked. There's a virus. The biological weapons cause some kind of a mutation in the local population, increase some kind of receptivity to a quotidian infection that itself was also mutated. Singularly, there's no discernible impact, but if an individual with a mutation catches a mutated strain of the virus, then the individual becomes an infectious carrier. And what is the virus? said Jessica. The French doctors called it le bon sang, but the other medics misheard and started calling it the bone saint. Casualties suddenly seem immune to any other illness, impervious to any other bacterial infection. Scar tissue seems to become repaired. Injuries seem to heal themselves faster than would be expected. Another reason why they called it the bone saint was because several casualties actually started to grow back missing teeth. How is this an illness? Jessica smiled, somehow both appalled and appealed. She was imagining a handsome young man with a rotted out portrait in his attic. Because the apparently positive effects are being caused by a virus. We isolated several samples. It's undeniably a foreign infectious viral agent that's causing it all. You don't seem very excited, said Jessica. Are you surprised? This virus, it could change everything. It seems to repel other infections. But there's also some evidence that it cures infections that the patient is already suffering. And we haven't found one infected casualty yet with high blood pressure, heart disease, even cancer. Bonnie and Jessica became utterly still. You're saying this virus cures cancer or inhibits its growth. The pool of infected just isn't large enough yet for any of us to be sure, but it's only a matter of time before, before the world finds out about it. Yes, said Margaret to Bonnie. And what will happen then? Everyone in the world is going to want to catch it. Yes. It isn't that simple, of course. It seems you can only catch Bone Saint if you already carry the original mutation, but, but there's going to be a hell of a race to find a way to spread that mutation. Of course. Theoretically, this virus could undo other viruses. It's demented. I mean, we're talking about a small, out-of-the-way, poverty-stricken place here, so there are all sorts of old-fashioned reasons for this, but we haven't yet even found an infected person who's overweight. A virus that cures illness, that preserves bodily functionality, that impedes decay and entropy. It's as if this virus undoes catastrophe. Professor Michael Breeden finished his book, and it was good. By now he had a tremendous reputation on campus, on all the neighbouring campuses. By now he was broadcasting on a rarefied frequency where those who tuned in would become infected by his ideas. He was young, but the right kind of young, and sexy, and entirely the wrong kind of sexy, which was of course in the final analysis the only worthwhile kind of sexy. His ideas were threatening, 
but secretive. His articles and lectures put thoughts in you, hid theories within you. His ideas had a bacterial load. Some people criticised him as a pointlessly naive neophyte whose liberalism and bleeding height sanctimony threatened to pollute proper and pure intellectual rigour with a corruptive and degrading emphasis on feelings and empathy. But others read the same words and concluded that his was a callous and brutal philosophy where weakness was utterly maligned and rejected in a relentless pursuit of crystalline and inanimate perfection. A student might begin with one impression and end with the other. A student might begin a loathing critic and end an infected disciple, or vice versa. Still others, millions upon millions of others, had never heard of him. But even some of those millions upon millions of others had picked up and adopted his ideas second-hand. Like a dead man's suit or cigarette smoke, they picked it up from other academics and journalists and politicians and bloggers and friends and relatives, sometimes spread verbatim, other times corrupted or perverted. Professor Breeden's lessons became spread out across the membrane of what people thought and believed and understood. He became a plot by which to navigate, even unconsciously, even erroneously. You would have had to have been a politician or a porn star to have had a similar reach, first, second, third or fourth hand, on social media or in the back room of bars. In the late 17th century, King Charles II outlawed the selling of coffee, not because of the health effects of caffeine, but because of his government's fear of the ideas that were spreading in coffee houses. Professor Breeden knew facts like this, and they informed his theory. He had come to believe that the framework by which he understood the world was sufficiently perspicacious to allow him to intuit and understand every major political and social event and trend in history, and then predict what was going to happen next. He managed this feat not through any traditional dialectical approach, through the extrapolation of causality, but through the recognition that it was all a disaster, a literal and cataclysmic disaster. Whether an inopportune cold or a car crash or the devastation of society's politics through a single act of unanticipated violence, all the world was a savage garden of ruin and bones. His book was called The Eminence Grise, and it was the 800-page distillation of his ideas on the infectious nature of catastrophe. Catastrophe was a virus that didn't spread through contact or the exchange of bodily fluids, wasn't transmitted through the air or blood. It wasn't even spread by events, by consequence or logic. No, catastrophe was spread through some other agent entirely, some other environment whose existence could be posited only by the broken marriage, the premature grave, the broken shell of the tower block. Every possible abomination and corruption, every single trauma and accident, was inevitable and necessary and predictable, by virtue of its arbitrary random nature, by virtue of its cruel lack of meaning and virtue. Professor Breeden had it all mapped out, this universe of disaster. He maintained a library to keep a check of it all, of sorts, in his mind's eye, a library within a haunted house of associations and knowledge and supposition. A haunted house he kept in his mind, that was clustered along an avenue of related memory palaces and mnemonic real estate. A valley of haunted houses, mimicking those he had inhabited in the past or merely envied, stretching and expanding and extending up the sides of those hills to populate castles and fortresses and lookouts on the summit. It was a mountain range populated by his ideas and theories and secret knowledge, and Professor Breeden, who had once raced down the corridors of a party invaded by cannibal zombie celebrities, now nursed his sanity in an interior world of knowledge, arguments and conclusions that kept him safe from the madness. Professor Breeden often retreated to his favourite secret library within the ballroom of his most strange haunted house down the Champs-Élysées of his mountain town. 
There he would hide from the insanity and read back over old histories told him by his teachers and mentors and informants and bed partners. It was a mad world, but his ideas kept him safe, and no matter where he was, he was safer in that library. Stuart Payne himself was in the library. Stuart's lessons were recorded there, and so Michael remained safe. That morning, the day of his Californian lecture, which was to be broadcast over the internet and which would be attended by a number of politicians that existed simultaneously on the opposing planes of respectability and outright loathing, Michael awoke and, while taking his shower, returned to his mountain range and to his town and to his Champs-Élysées and his favourite avenue and his finest haunted house and his perfect library. He stepped over the intricately designed and meticulously maintained threshold into the perfect space that he cultivated in his head and went straight to the book where Dr Payne's lessons were kept. There in the chair in the centre of his perfect library, the broken-spined book of Dr. Payne's lessons cracked open on his lap, was a grey man in a grey suit. The grey man in a grey suit didn't exist, but still he turned his head to Professor Breeden and smiled. His teeth were grey and his smile was empty. He had no meaning but it all. He was the patron saint of being right, and suddenly he was living in Michael's head. Now said the saint. On the other side of the country, in the small cottage inhabited by three witches, Bonnie's telephone chirruped, breaking the spell of Margaret's story. Sorry, Bonnie said, but the others understood. Bonnie had engineered several dozen lines of everyday communication, but she allowed none of them into her home when she was with her sisters. Only a single skein of knowledge that successfully threaded through several filters and risk management profiles could find her here, so this must be important. Bonnie picked up the telephone and examined the message. Oh. What is it, Jessica asked, as Bonnie hurried to her workshop in the basement of the cottage. The sisters followed her, down there into the laboratory where death machines and computer programs and strange devices that could be argued were alive, whirred and breathed, over to a terminal that seethed with intent and design. A single red light raced from one side of the terminal to the other and back again, an interminable sensor scanning everything and refusing to look away. What is it? Jessica repeated. The ladies in California. Margaret shivered. What about them? asked Jessica. It's the final frontier. I built them. Years ago. It's broadcasting again. Some lecture from a neighbouring university. But but that's odd. A local news station had the story. An angry mob had attacked a small private observatory on the California coast. It had turned out that the observatory was a commune for another angry mob and there had been a pitched battle. Police were investigating strange machines found in bizarre subterranean labyrinths under the observatory. Apparently the invading mob had loaded a file into one such machine and broadcast it out somewhere, perhaps everywhere. The file sat anywhere in the world, throbbing with infectious meaning, the crystallisation of Professor Breeden's ideas waiting to be breathed in. Meanwhile, medics were removing the dead bodies. Oh, Bonnie, Margaret held her friend. There was a loud knocking at the door. The sisters wanted to ignore it, but it wouldn't end. A furious pounding, an attack. Margaret growled and darted to the door, ready for violence. Outside it was midnight and pouring with rain. Lightning cracked apart the sky. In the cold, wet night was a slight young woman, clutching a bundle in her stick-thin arms. She was terrified. I was told to come here, she gasped. I was told you could help me. My name's Chase Rent. There are receptor cells in your brain that exist to metabolise chemicals and engender chain reactions that affect your reasoning and your mood, and therefore, who it is that you are said to be. Professor Breeden gave his lecture with a bloodless smile on his grey face. 
Simultaneously, within the secret library of his favourite haunted house in the mountain town of his memory, he stood and listened as the patron saint of being right taught him the exact same lesson. Similarly, you are a receptor cell yourself for ideas. Your purpose is to receive ideas and to become inspired by them, to be hijacked and transformed. Enthusiasm is, literally, to be filled with the divine, and that is the state of grace we attain when an idea strikes us and carries us away, when we become sanctified. But these ideas, by their definition, are not familiar and easy. These ideas are unnatural and cancerous. They are traumatic and disturbing. They are ideas exactly because they are new, catastrophic. They are the elements that drive inspiration, rupturing chaotic alien invaders. This is why we are so inspired by violence, by passion. A destructive thought strikes you like lightning and you are no longer the same. You're dead. The new you stands up and takes your place. You were born in a storm of outrage. It was the end of the world. Professor Breeden's words were threaded through the ether and directed by the Californian ladies' machine to Bonnie, Margaret and Jessica in 666 Candlewood, Cabot Coven. What will you do when you are struck by lightning? To be continued.